Please remain standing as I read this morning's text. This is from John chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. And the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You ready? I'm not ready. I don't want to do this. Any final words on offset?
worried and worn out and burdened. And this book was like words to a melody that I had been humming for a while. I didn't know how to say what I was feeling, and this book helped me to put into words the things that I was feeling. And that being said, it's not a self-help book. It's a book on spiritual formation. It, it helps us to see things clearly. And so our material for the next few weeks is largely based, in fact, uh, almost entirely based out of this book. And I would recommend it highly to you. We read our scripture this morning, John chapter 8, where Jesus delivers the famous line, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And in the, in the midst of this interchange, Jesus has been dealing with these religious elite, these Pharisees who have been challenging Jesus and Jesus brings the challenge right back to them. Here's where we need to start this morning. We are at war. Our people with lies. We are at war, not with people, but with lies. It is a war for our soul. And we fight against three enemies. Enemies that early church fathers, monks, scholars, theologians have been framing up are the enemies of our soul in Jesus' day. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now this seems maybe a little bit fundamentalist to us. Like maybe you're coming to church for the first time in person online. You're like, okay, here we go. Talking about the devil, and this, you know, this kind of like, what's he going to say next? And it's all kind of old hat, and we're seeing it this morning. Like, like some of us come from, from fundamentalist churches where they're hardcore conservative, and there's, there's no room to think or, or to think beyond that paradigm or concept. Like some of us came from churches in, in which they'd say something like this, like that old Baptist saying, uh, the problem with premarital sex is that it might lead to dancing, right? Like, okay, you get it. Yeah, all right, yeah. It took, it took some time. Those of you in the back row, you'll laugh in about 30 seconds. But to apprentice Jesus, to be his disciple, means that we're stepping onto a battlefield. Our following of Jesus is not one of passive bliss, but of purposeful battle. And if we're going to fight well, we need to be equipped with weapons of war for the war that we are fighting. We're at war, not with people, but with lies. This will start to resonate with some of us as we dig into it, because although most of us can outline our lives based on all the convenience and comfort we've built into it, we still feel the tension of spiritual formation. Like, like we wouldn't know exactly how to articulate it, but having all our needs met and more, we still feel this tension. Like, why do I desire what I don't have? Why can't I just be content? Why do I find myself pursuing things that I know are harmful to me? Why, after all my accumulation, do I still have no satisfaction? Our desires are insatiable. Our dreams, unattainable. Our direction, inconsequential. Our despair, insurmountable. We are at war with lies. And the problem is not so much that we tell them. It's that we live them. In our culture, we choose to live lies. And so what Comer does with the paradigm of the world, the flesh, and the devil in this book is he flips it on its head and we work in reverse order. And he says it this way, that deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires are then normalized in unholy lives. Let me say that one more time. Deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires which are then normalized in sinful desires. 
here's an excerpt from the book. Most people today want nothing to do with faith in the public square. The church is seen as part of the problem, not the solution. What's more, the radical moral reversal around human sexuality, gender, and the life of the unborn, we now have the moral low ground in many people's eyes. Jesus' vision of humanity is perceived as immoral by a large swath of the population. There are a lot of lies that we live into. There's a lot of cultural lies. Let me just give you a few examples. One comes from the writing and thinking of C.S. Lewis. He at least popularized the idea. And it's the myth, it's the lie of chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. It's this um, idea, it's the innate human bias to believe that we are smarter and better and have better ideas than the people who live the longest. And while there might be a surplus of information, and while knowledge may be more easily attained, we are nowhere near more intelligent. I work with high school and middle school students who have access to all the information they could ever need and are making worse decisions than ever before. Chronological snobbery is that innate human bias to believe that we know better. We know better than they did back then. We're more intelligent. We're more perceptive. There's a second cultural lie, and it's this. It's called the myth of progress, popularized by a, a man uh, often called the Flynn Effect. But the myth of progress is this. It's a, it's a quasi-religious dogma that comes from Western society, and, and it's this belief that people are evolving and becoming um, the fullest realization of, of humanity, that there's a utopia that we're headed towards, and eventually we will get there. But as we make progress, more and more of the world's problems go away. It's the progressive ideology that's often spoken of. If these lies that many people live are in fact truth, then when is this utopia supposed to arrive? When will the perfect human show up? You would think it would have happened by now, or at least we'd have the answer by now. And so Jesus steps into this war this battlefield between truth and lies. And in John chapter 8, we get a snapshot of how he might counteract a line of thinking in the religious people of his day. See, Jesus strikes a nerve with the religious, with the religious elite by challenging their very identity. Jesus goes after them. This is take off the gloves and let's throw hands kind of fight. It doesn't seem that way as we give a cursory reading of it, but I'm telling you, this is intense. This is heated. This is like sat down at the Thanksgiving table and family member brought up politics to you, okay? Like, it's about to get weird with these these Pharisees. And it really gets weird when Jesus begins to push back on them saying, your father is actually the devil. And they respond to Jesus. They respond to Jesus by saying, we're not illegitimate children of God. You'll remember that Jesus' parents were unmarried at the time that he was born. Not until they came together did they realize that the spirit of God was that was not news to anyone. They knew that Mary and Joseph were unmarried at the time Jesus was born. And so what the Pharisees are literally saying back to Jesus as he's challenged their identity is, Jesus, we're not Baptists like you are. We don't read that in our English version Bible, but that's what the Greek is saying. We're not illegitimate children of God. Jesus is like, okay, okay. Gloves are off and they're going at it. Jesus challenges them by calling them sons of their father, the devil. And it's here that we get Jesus' most clear revelation of who the devil is. In the famous work, The Art of War, Sun Tzu delivers a 
popular line. The first step to winning in battle is to know your enemy. So where do these deceptive ideas start? Well, they come from a superstition. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 24, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. Here's a mistake that is often made is the belief that Satan is a name. Really, it's a title. See, whenever Scripture speaks about this evil being that persuades and tempts and invites people into lives of sin, the Bible doesn't actually name him, but often refers to him based on several different titles. One is the devil, diabolos is the Greek word, which means the slanderer. Another is the Satan or the Satan, which is maybe the more appropriately which means the opposer or the adversary. And every time in the Hebrew or Greek text that that's included, it includes an article, the, the Satan. There are other places in the Hebrew text where it would include a, a Satan, which simply means an opposing team, someone who opposes Jesus. These are titles, not names. He is the devil, the Satan, the tempter, the evil one, the destroyer, the deceiver, the great dragon, the ancient serpent, and most Scholars, many scholars would suggest that this is intentional on behalf of Jesus and the authors of the scriptures, that they're not even going to give him any credit. Why? They poke him because they won't even dignify him with a name. They only refer to him by title. Some of you might remember the famous line from Kaiser Soze, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was getting people to believe he is a non-existent little devil is not Jesus' equal opposite. The devil is not the yin to the yang. The devil is a created being who has a definite beginning and a definite end. Jesus is a conqueror. He is the alpha and omega to all this cosmos, who is not threatened by the devil himself, who has already banished him and damned him to hell forever. Some of you have seen the Trapped in Iron Buttress series, but it's a shade The devil is the animating energy behind so much of the devil we see His angle is deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires that when we analyze make us sad. Um, the devil's not going around just telling lies. It's lies that play to our disordered desires. And so here's an example of what this looks like. Like Satan's not using his way up in here like Jesus did and Paul McCartney died a long a guy who's an imposter who's doing all of his shows. You go live as if that's true. No, that's not. Like, none of us are falling victim to that. No, Satan, the Satan, these are names given to deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires. Things like, you'd be much happier if you're married to hard to believe the devil is real sometimes, but our very experience is physically and scripturally. We know what it's like to hear those lies from the enemy. 
have perspective ideas that are beyond the mind, but those individuals and societies have gone to these confrontations with the conviction, Paul explains it this way in Romans chapter 7, that I find myself, I find myself wanting to do the very things I know are good and right, not having the power to do them. monk, his name is Evagrius, and he wrote a book called Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons, and what he says is that the fight against demons, the fight against the logosin, thoughts, what is it, thought life, you have thought patterns and internal narratives, you have stories that you tell yourself to make sense of the world, there's a line of thinking that you have to help you understand reality, they function as wayfinders, you have these mental maps of your Our fight with the devil is first and foremost a fight to take control back of our minds, of our very thought life, from their captivity to lies and liberate them with the weapon of truth. And in doing so, verse 32 of our text, we know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's a difference, and we we need to be careful in understanding who the devil is and what he's about. There's a difference between demonic activity Like uh, some of us, you may hear a line from time to time from a friend or something like that, and you're like, "Man, I'm just, I'm just under attack right now. I just, I, I, I woke up late, and I didn't get to crash out on time." It's like, well, I don't think you probably should set your alarm for that. I, I don't know. Like maybe, maybe just that little push, you didn't do that. There's, there's a difference between dumb and demonic. If there is demonic activity, here's what we're, where we're tempted to look so often. There are all kinds of tragic and evil things that happen in our world, and, and we quickly assign those things to the devil. Things like natural disasters and sex trafficking and abuse and addiction, all these different kinds of things that are evil and abhorred and wicked. But those are all second, second, third, fourth, fifth tier in terms of how the devil operates. His primary need is what? Lies. He is the father of lies. And what he wants to do on the most base level is inject a thought in start to paint reality around different things that you don't want to see. Perspective ideas play to our disordered desires. They normalize desires. And we need to be careful to put the devil in its proper place. C.S. Lewis in his screw-tape letters says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician as feigning delight. We must be careful not to fall into one camp or the other. The devil is real. It, he is so powerful that I will always be oppressed, and the devil is not real, and I will not be oppressed. Here's how another famous theologian might say it, which is a little easier for us. Michael Scott would say it this way. I'm not superstitious, but I am a little superstitious. This is actually a a biblical idea, right? We should be a little vicious. We should understand that there is an enemy. There is an opponent who wants to bring deceptive ideas into our minds. And not just lies, but lies that play to our disordered desires. Lies that are then normalized in terms of society at large. Jesus says when the devil speaks, he speaks his native tongue. It is all lies. He is not a truth teller. It is not in him. He's not capable of doing that. 
He has one ambition, and that is to see the world ripped apart, to usher in chaos and pain, fear, turmoil into our existence. And he does this by injecting lies into our thought patterns. That we would start to think lies and therefore live lies. And it's not so much that we tell lies, it's that we live lies. We're content to believe what the lies are. So how do we realize these lies, and how do we start to honor and live them? Well, let's define truth. Truth is reality. Truth is reality, or that which corresponds to reality. Truth is reality, or that which corresponds to reality. Therefore, lies are unreality. And reality is when we run into reality. Someone seen the movie Toy Story, and they see the jokes in Toy Story 1, and they laugh those jokes a little back. So there's a moment in Toy Story where Buzz Lightyear is just certain that he can fly. And so in Sid's house, he climbs up on the railing, and he begins to spread his wings. It's a majestic moment. There's music in the background, and he jumps. And for a brief moment, you're led to believe that he's flying. The magic is real. And what does he do? He tumbles all the way to the bottom of the stairs, and boom, arm falls off, and all of a sudden he's Here's some irony. In a movie about toys that can talk and move and sing and do whatever and make little things fly. Okay, I don't know. But that's reality. What do you run into? You drown. That's reality. Reality is what you run into when you're wrong. My daughter Campbell, and I may have shared this with you before. My daughter Campbell, we had a moment a few months ago where we kind of looked at her toys, trying to help her learn some responsibility and take some steps and initiative because she will never use her but five toys, and that's because if your five toys are here, you don't have any toys. You can watch a show until you never have any stuff. And so she starts to run around the room, and and she does a lot without doing anything. She can't even look out of place. Why? I haven't said anything yet. And so Campbell's running around, and, and I'm watching her, and, and she picks up four toys, and I say, okay, Dad, I'm ready to watch the show. She's like, no, you, you need to pick up five toys. And she's like, I did. work out really well. What's the reality she's going to run into? Like at its most base level, math is truth. (laughs) Amen to Jeff Armstrong for the day. Like that's reality. This is five. It always will be. You can't change it. Reality is what you run into when you're wrong and truth is reality or that which corresponds to reality. We pick up on this deceiver, the devil, with the con from the very beginning of the If we were to rewind all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God gives some instruction and direction to Adam and Eve as they enter the garden. He says, hey, listen, you can eat from anything in the garden, but there's one tree you can't eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he gives this promise. If you eat of it, you will surely die. What's the lie of the con? It slithers up. skeletons with no belly buttons anywhere on them. Like, you know who Adam and Eve are. Some other jokes we'll get after a while, but 
reality is when we run into one another. So all of us have what psychologists call mental maps. We have wayfindings of the world around us. Maps help us navigate territory we don't know, and our, our mental maps do so in reality. If our mental maps aren't true, if they don't correspond with reality, we will run into I got this watch uh, almost four years ago. It's a Garmin watch. It has GPS capability. Almost all of us have a device with GPS capability. Most of us, anytime we get in the car, pull open this device and pull up Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever. It's weird. And so then you, like, you're using GPS to lead you somewhere. And oftentimes what I have to do, like if I'm, if I'm going backpacking or something like that, when I get to a new place, I have to calibrate the compass. It might be off by just a few degrees or whatever, and so I have to calibrate the compass and let it communicate again with the GPS signal so that it is accurate and correct. And if your compass isn't calibrated to the reality of God's world, the destinations that we hope to arrive at will always be just out of place. We have maps for money and sexuality and relationships, and and, and we are the only creatures who have the capacity to imagine what isn't or could be. We're the only ones who have the ability to hold that in our tension, retention within our mind. And because we have the capacity to imagine things that aren't true, we also then can believe them and operate as if they're true. Countless examples of this happening in our world today. People who are choosing to believe things that aren't true, not reality. And they are believing it so much that they're now living as if they were true when they weren't. Reality does not adjust itself to our illusions. It's cold. Just because progress is happening doesn't mean our world is different. And when our maps are wrong, when our mental maps are wrong, we're not telling ourselves lies and we're living them. When our mental maps are wrong, we're not telling ourselves lies and we're living them. Um, my wife and I, when we lived in Dallas, would often order meats from Chipotle. In the area that we live, there are multiple Chipotles. No, we don't even have one here. Uh, but there are multiple Chipotles where, where we used to live. And so we would, um, depending on where we were, we would often order meats from the restaurant we were close to. And we would pick it up and take it home with us. And there were a number of times where we would order food. And my wife or I would show up to the restaurant. And we would walk up to the pickup area and, and our food wouldn't be there. And we'd walk up to the counter and say, hey, I'm looking over online. Like, yeah, here's what it was, chicken burrito, quesadilla, like whatever, right? Be like, no, we don't have any breakfast or whatever. Like, yeah, I'm normal, but it's just quick, and and it'll open me up. And be like, okay, well, that's because you've chosen to order from the restaurant that has no food. They don't have my burrito. I never got my burrito. I arrived at a destination that I never intended to go to because of that restaurant. Our mental maps, if they don't correspond to reality, us into oblivion. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 7 as he's teaching about what it looks like to live the life of the Son of Man. He says this, if a person believes the darkness will see them as light, how great that darkness is. Maps should move us in the direction of our desired destinations. If our maps are, are bad, we will never arrive at the why Jesus came to earth, not as Moses, not as a warrior, not as a politician, but as a rabbi, as a 
as peace ever comes, cutting into the false claims of the world so often builds up. Jesus steps into the story, into the battlefield, into the war for our souls as someone who tells the truth. I'm not afraid to say it right in the face of adversity. You belong to your father who's better. Because he's so used to hearing lies that he can't even understand the truth when it comes right to the heart. Jesus chose this man. He could have been a hostile takeover. He could have subdued his enemies by pure force. But he knows the king of the world has the answer to tell it to him. He knows that he is confronted with a beggar who is struggling to pay his debt. The best of ideas. The best of ideas for those who know the desire for eternal life is to help them. Gary Kasparov, who's a seven-award Tamiya commander, a Russian exile, makes a very interesting point that the point of modern propaganda isn't only to misinform or misinformate, it is to exhaust the critical thinking and annihilate the deceiver. So this is what the deceiver does. He constantly bombards us with propaganda. Not so much that we even have to buy into it, but that our critical thinking is exhausted. That at the time that we need to make a decision or focus our life in a specific direction, we're so worn out by the things that we see, the waiting news, the news that are coming in, that we don't have the capacity to discern the difference. He is a propagandizer, is what he does. There's all kinds of propaganda we believe. Some of us fall into what I would call the Eeyore category. Ever seen Santa Claus? days were all the same. Remember the good old days? Remember how good it was back then? And so we project onto our future worse than what we've left behind because we've lived into that lie. Here's another one many of us tell ourselves. If anyone asks me, I'm stuck. So I'll continue to pretend to be the person that everyone else thinks that I am. to live lies than to try to help people. Jesus says the reason it's hard to help people is because the Pharisees said that his word has no place Jesus will continue this line of thinking and Jesus says you don't understand me because I tell the truth. You're so used to hearing this deception. You're so used to living in this big lie. Yet when the truth hits you in the face you don't understand that there's no place for We love to be lied to. We love to live into those lies. Here are some lies that we tune into as the deceiver fiddles his way up the chain. Here's what you don't have to do. All you need is a person who will listen to you. You need a person who will tell you you deserve to be embarrassed. You deserve to be embarrassed over what you've done.
Jews says this, the deception of private information can take slavery to sin and it can prove stop entertaining the lie, you will stop resisting. Temptation is the appeal to believe a lie, to believe an illusion about something that is not true. Dr. Timothy Levine, who is famous for popularizing the idea of truth or falsehood. He worked for the CIA for a number of years, and Malcolm Gladwell in one of his books talks about this. He says this, Malcolm Gladwell um, says that because of truth or falsehood, we want to believe other That's our default nature. Most of us would consider ourselves wise about the world, and and we have a skeptical nature, but it's actually, it's human nature for almost all of us to wield this delusion of self-sufficiency because we want to believe the truth. But here's what Gladwell says. We do not behave, in other words, like sober-minded scientists, slowly gathering evidence of truth or falsity of something before reaching a conclusion. We do the opposite. We start by believing. We stop believing only when our doubts and misgivings rise to the point of reaching the proper conclusion. We start by believing. This is why these deceptive ideas are so effective. Because because they play to our disordered desires. We want to believe them. We want to believe that that thing that Satan's telling us is true is what will make us happy. And so we're content to map the world based upon reality and live in a disguised None of us sin out of responsibility. We sin out of compulsion, out of impulsivity. Like, none of us, uh, man, what, 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 my friend and I, babe, the guys are coming over. We've, we haven't coveted in a while, and so we're going to stand on the driveway and covet. Um, my neighbor has a really nice new car, and so we just, it's, it's the right thing to do, okay? It's something we've had scheduled, and if we stop doing it now, like, it probably won't happen in the future, and so we just need to, I just need to do that thing. None of us are doing that. We don't feel that responsibility because we sin because we are compelled to do so by the weight of our own doubts and misgivings. So we are susceptible to lies because of truth or false theories. But in reality, like we want to believe them. Accepting lies as truth usually means less resistance for us than sin. We want to live as much of our lives on autopilot as possible. always reinvoke the truth. The path of least resistance is almost always a road to reinvoke the truth. Another early church father and monk, Ignatius of Loyola, here's what he would say. Here's how he defines sin, and I love this. Unwillingness to trust that what God wants to do might be what we have to do. Sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants to do why the devil's primary target is our trust in God and his truth as it comes to us in Scripture. The deception, or really the temptation, is and always has been twofold. To try to seize autonomy from God, and then to try to redefine the cathedral based on what we want. This is what Adam and Eve are trying to achieve.
become what we give our time to. Perhaps the biggest lie we believe is this. We mistake pleasure for happiness. When happiness is the pin we drop on the map and we say, I want to get here, the lie is the belief that the pursuit of more and more pleasure can lead us to the destination of happiness. And that couldn't be further from the truth, not just from biblical scripture, but from all social research that consciously exerts the belief we humans less prefer finishing our pursuits our pace less, we will find that we seek satisfaction in other things. In trying to find our way to that satisfaction, we look for shortcuts, and we settle for cheap imitations of genuine, abundant life. We enjoy pursuing happiness. When I think of deception, I, I think of this notion that used in ways to coerce your mind to believe something it's not actually there. Satan uses this notion of notion he reveals with temptation in years to show us the truth. And so whenever we begin to hear that voice, whenever we hear those lies, when it's hard to learn to hear it, we realize, okay, am I not paying attention to what I should be paying attention to? What am I doing to deceptive practice that I should be There are no shortcuts to satisfaction. So how do we counteract lies that have shaped our lives. Here's where we're headed this morning. We come back to Evagrius the Cretan who wrote that pamphlet. Here's what his pamphlet said. If you had an exercise, make your home orchard. You go hunting and you try to enjoy reasons well that you, as you hear lies and temptation, you'll find a scripture that corresponds to it and you'll try to reject it. Here's the lie that you're being deceptive about. Here's the lie that you about the Lord. It might look something like this. If you create your own handbook for combating the attacks of temptation, you might be convinced or you might hear a deceptive idea that goes something like this. This will end poorly and you will fail. There's no hope for you. For that, you can go straight to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me by quiet waters. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. God and my staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The key of Evagrius is there when we begin to drop the temptation and begin to look for the scripture. If we are so corrupted by deception, we must reject the truth at every opportunity. Maybe a lie you believe is, I don't have the faith good enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not pretty enough, or like whatever it is, I don't have what it takes. Jesus would look at us and say, the grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Some of us still walk into church every week hearing the truth of God's word, believing this lie, that I'm not worthy. I don't deserve to be here. We can go back to Romans 5.8 and one singular declarative statement for all time, for all people, that you are what Jesus said you were. There's one other lie that maybe you're tempted to believe like me, that I've got to figure out a way to control this, to make sure the outcome ends up just how I want it to be, and I feel this spinning out of my control, so I need to just kind of grasp and claw and cling to the things that I can control. 
reminded of, of, of God's word through Moses as he sends Moses back to Egypt to meet people. Moses like, listen, God, I don't think I can do this. I don't speak very well. I'm incapable. I don't fit. And God just looks at him and says, is anything too hard for me? Because it's on you, Moses. This is what I'm doing. Why don't you shut up, buckle up, and let's go to Egypt. That's the truth. Key is not to think about such differences leverage turns from taking us to the objective truth of the human mind to have certain things counteract us. Romans 12 teaches this, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is our thought life. It is the war that is waged within our soul. This is the battlefield. If you're not equipped to fight, you will fail. If we contain as a truth teller, as a warrior on the battlefield of truth that we embody, as his team among us who demonstrated consummate tragedy of being with the Father, being in the Word, pursuing righteousness, and allows us to live free and liberated from the lies that are so often making us think our world and our home lies in us. Shepherdite Jesus, we pray to our children We'll spend the next couple of weeks unpacking that a little bit more deeply, getting into it, and hopefully becoming stronger in pursuing Jesus and being instances of him in good circumstances as we try to live in the truth of the human mind. Let's pray. Let's worship.